Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Potential Paradigms. Our topic today is technology. Technology has become so prevalent that it has almost become invisible. But do we know what defines technology? Today, we will be looking at several historical movements and philosophies that have shaped our current understanding of technology and its development. Some of these movements include deism, colonialism, materialism, transhumanism, and postmodernism. We will also be exploring the hidden dangers of technology, the limits of human rationality, technology in ancient civilizations, and potential new understandings of technology that will restore the well-being of our planet in our now apocalyptic civilization. Let's now turn to the conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Potential Paradigms. We will be exploring today the subject of technology and possible future technological paradigms in our troubled civilization. Today, I have the privilege of having with me Professor Debashish Banerjee, who is the Haridas Chowdhury Professor of Indian Philosophies and Culture, and also the Chair of the Department of East-West Psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. He's the author of several books, and one of his books is The Seven Quartets of Becoming, which is his interpretation of the yoga psychology of Sri Aurobindo. He's also the editor of a recently released anthology called Critical Posthumanism and Planetary Futures. So welcome and thank you for being with me, Devashish. Thank you, Kilan. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure talking to you. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's my pleasure, sir. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe to begin with, as we were talking earlier, um, we can look at a very important component of our civilization, which is technology. And uh, when I was doing some research, I found that one way to look at technology in contemporary Western civilization is, is an instrument um, with, as a means to an end of um, modifying nature or the planet to a certain goal that we want. And it seems that um, there are other civilizations and other modes in which technology can be looked at in, in other ways. But uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about the current um, paradigm we live in, in which technology is a more of a materialistic and perhaps some connections with colonialism as well. Yeah, Kenan. In fact, uh, yeah, absolutely. Technology is really one, you know, if one uses the philosophical term, the ontology of our times. Uh, our reality is mediated by technology. Uh, we, are, we are right now talking mediated by technology, uh, very sophisticated technology, uh, uh, technology that spans the globe. And in this time when it's difficult to meet uh, because of a pandemic, um, it's perhaps the only way. And, and we are seeing a civilization shift right now because of this. Um, there's going to be more and more of this kind of a norm of technological mediation. But this kind of a technological world, uh, I'd say, has been accelerating um, in its present phase from, it depends on what kind of a window you want to put on it, either from the beginning of the 21st century, or we can go back a little bit and say from the 1980s, 1990s, when internet began, or go back a little further and say from the 1960s, 
um, in a really technological mode of existence uh, worldwide seems to have uh, occupied our, uh, our our human consciousness. But if we go back even further, how did we get here? You know, I mean, we don't even ask the question today because we take it for granted. But if you get go back even further, then we see that, you know, the history of modernity uh, it goes back to maybe about the 16th century, you know, the kind of world changes at that time because one continent, you know, Europe, um, undergoes some revolutionary changes and you have an age of humanism that arises. You have the Renaissance, so to say, where, you know, people don't take for granted the kind of authority that they're given uh, from the religious sphere that don't want to take for granted the, the political authority of uh, kings and emperors and things like that. And we gradually shift to this age of humanism. Uh, in the age of humanism, the question is, this is actually before that, you may say, all over the world. The question of who is the human or what is the human is not asked. You, you have people. You have human beings, and they have traditions, that they have histories, and they've become whoever they are. And in, to some extent, they, they don't even know who somebody else is, right? But what happens uh, in Europe at that time is this kind of a self-definition of the human that crystallizes itself over about 100 years or so between the 16th and the 17th century. And we embark upon this kind of a chapter of modernity as we know it. And, um, you know, at the heart of this, because of this transition or displacement of the authority of reality, how do we come to know, you know, that the whole notion of what we call knowledge, knowledge, is another term for knowledge is science, you know. Uh, from which the term omniscience comes. God knows everything. He's omniscient, you know. So how do we come to that kind of an omniscience? Or where do we find that omniscience once we've jettisoned the authority of omniscience, right? So gradually the shift that takes place is going to center the whole idea of knowledge in the human mind. It's... Uh, the definition of the human as a, a rational being. And, uh, you know, I mean, philosophers of uh, modernity uh, in much later, later times, I think post-1960, when we really start grappling with the crisis that we are going through, um, are saying, and one of the major philosophers of that uh, of the whole idea of modernity is Martin Heidegger. And he's saying that essentially this shift is a shift where we seem to want to know using our mind, but the method by which the mind seeks is actually an instrumental method. We objectify the world and we seem to want to know the nuts and bolts of it. And that's what makes us know. And 
we call that knowledge and we try to piece it together and come to fullness of knowledge, that's in a sense the goal of the enlightenment. But if, even if you think of it as an image, it's a technological image. That's why Heidegger is saying that the shift that took place between the 16th and 17th century was not that we entered an age of science, we actually entered an age of technology. And it's an inevitable leap from that to want to tinker with everything, the laws, because we now know how they're constructed to create the perfect world. It leads to its own theology, which is a kind of version of deism, which is that God gave us his prime faculty with which he made the world, the reason of God, the Logos. And he gave us the responsibility of perfecting the world that he put on our laps. See, So, of course, this kind of a theological idea is not held largely by the scientific community because it moves to, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a kind of an excuse. It's an intermediate between a God-centered world and a man-centered world. But very quickly, we realize we don't need God at all. What we need now is reason to understand the world and perfect the world. And so we enter into this age of gradual science and technology that becomes the method of knowledge. You know, we talk about the, the modern knowledge academy, the universities and schools and everything. The entire worldwide knowledge academy and it doesn't matter whether you're studying psychology or you're studying English literature, you're studying music, you're studying it in a scientific manner. So the method of science is the very heart of our way of knowing. And the method of science, according to Heidegger, is actually secretly the front for the technology of knowledge, knowledge as technology, the will to knowledge as technology. Okay. And so it seems as if we suddenly entered into this technological world from the 1960s or 1990s or even 2000 or so, but it's a long time coming. It's It's been coming. I mean, it's it's this is the image of the natural historical image of the human, you know, which you see in these great, you know, you know, sort of images of progress that you have the hominid that crawls and then gradually stands up and then holds a spear in his hand. And then you have the chain that ultimately leads us to the modern human, supposed to be the most sophisticated creature um, with full knowledge and what defines it. It's technology. It's the sophistication, the most uh, kind of advanced technology. And so man is the tool bearer and tool meaning ultimately the instrument by which we can know everything. You know, we can come to complete knowledge because we've uncovered all the secrets of the world. And uncovering the secrets of the world means ultimately possessing 
the ability to do what we want with the world, have that power over the world. That's the entire hidden agenda of the modern age that has revealed itself gradually and we are at the cusp of that, um, you know, of that age and we've reached a kind of technological divinity today, I'd say. Because if think of, our, of it, you know, what's the definition of divinity? It's omniscience, omnipotence and omnipresence. Oh, we started by talking about that. We are omnipresent. We are, we are talking, you know, across the globe at any time. We've, we've, we've taken over time and space. Um, we're projecting our images. We're projecting our voices. We're communicating. We're everywhere. We, even as I'm walking in my home, I can get a phone call from anywhere in the world. In other words, there is an omniscient consciousness a rather omnipresent consciousness, which I'm part of and I'm in access with. Um, there's also a omniscience because anything I want, I just type a few words. Google is my, you know, little technological window into omniscience. And then uh, omnipotence, it's so, see so it seems. I mean, those that person who has the power the the master of capital can actually just press a button. And we are kind of scaring each other off right now with people saying, yeah, I'm just going to press the button, you know, unless you kind of hold back on your dogs over me, uh, I press the button. So basically, it's a kind of, you know, surrogate divinity, a technological divinity that is the conclusion of this age and we seem to have hit that point right now so from that point of view yeah technology technology is is our age and in a sense this is this is the whole hubris and the you know agenda the will of of our time of, of our time window yeah beautiful uh yeah there's there's quite a lot in there actually uh, you know, a lot of what you said could, part of it, if taken out of context, could be a perfect pitch for transhumanism or singularity university. <laughs> but, but clearly, I mean, you said, um, some interesting things, one connecting it to, to Heidegger, where he takes technology to the forefront as the, as the main thing. Cause often in, in the scientific arena, I remembered, you know, this is always the debate between pure sciences uh, versus engineering or technology was a secondary thing. But it looks like Heidegger has a view where he, he reverses it, that the technology is the primary agenda, maybe not the best word, so to speak. Um, where, yes. yeah. And, and, uh, and, and you were also saying that this is not so much a conscious, a lot of people who are even engaged in technology might not be conscious about, what are the underlying principles and historically how this has been long coming? But clearly, um, maybe you can you can take a direction if you like. Um, there are challenges with this. One is you know this this idea that rationality uh, provides us with a satisfaction or reason will ultimately provide us with satisfaction. We clearly see in our age um, that that's not the case. Time and time again, technology seems to have been 
used to, you know, blow something here or destroy the environment or kill each other. We might even be at the brink of an extinction. Uh, but at the same time, all the wonderful examples that you were giving, I mean, we we are almost having a spiritual, quote-unquote, non-local experience in this conversation, um, which is another theme in itself where I feel that in today's generation, a lot of spiritual ideas are more accessible because, you know, you just have direct access to them by birth. Right. Uh, but at the same time, the technology doesn't seem to have evolved our egoic conflict so much. And it just seems like we're a bunch of monkeys just sitting on nuclear weapons and satellites and whatnot. Um, so it, there does seem to be th th this conflict. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, cannot. You know, so this is where some contemporary philosophers, are. I mean, contemporary is again such a tricky word because what is contemporary you know i mean we, we are racing so fast that whatever we call contemporary is already history you know but uh thinkers like derrida are you are kind of going back to plato and using the term pharmacon you know from which we have the notion of the pharmacy right the, the, the pharmacon, according to Plato, is that which is, you know, it can kill you or it can save you, you know. That's the pharmacon. The pharmacon is really poison to some and, and medicine to some, right? It depends on if it's administered to the right person in the right way. Um, and, and technology is a pharmacology in, in that sense, you know. Do we know what used to, you, as you put it, you know, are we a bunch of monkeys sitting in the control room of the most dangerous, you know, rocket ship or, you know, nuclear sort of uh, war room possible to history? Or do we know what we are doing? You know, that, that's, that's one of the questions with regard to the pharmacology of our times. But you know, as you pointed out, I mean, I think if you point to Heidegger, you actually have to go a little further back to the beginning of this century. You have to go back to Nietzsche, who's talking about the will, the will to power. And that really is the center through which, you know, I mean, even this kind of thinking about um, is technology at the forefront of our age or science at the forefront of our age is coming from that. because. Nietzsche is saying that, you know, all this idealistic stuff is just kind of whitewash. You know, that, you know, this, as you said, you know, science and technology, pure knowledge and applied knowledge, right? This is, this is how we en enter into this, this transition in knowledge seeking, right? How are we going to replace the knowledge of the church? How are we going to replace the knowledge that's coming down on high from the commandments of God, right? Um, well, what will we replace it with? We'll replace it with our reason, but the reason can easily be infected by our desires, so we have to make a distinction between that which is free of desires, pure knowledge. Pure knowledge is not infected by any desire um, for, for anything. Uh, it's just there for itself. 
this is the idealism of the rational age. You know, the idealism of the rational age is that we can separate ourselves from our desires and just seek knowledge for itself. And that would be the knowledge that God wants us to have. God knowledge, you know, just knowledge, knowledge, disinterested, as Kant says, disinterested knowledge, you know. But what Nietzsche is saying is that, you know, that that that's really a kind of a way by which we are sort of bypassing the fact that everything that we do is really serving the will to power. We want to know because we want to have power. We try to act as if we don't want to know for that reason. We just want to know purely. But indeed, you know, we are catapulted by the will to power. Even before we can really come to full knowledge or any knowledge, our power is making use of it to bring it to our advantage. And bringing it to our advantage is how do I make it something that I can get something from and I can push other people down so that they don't compete with me to get what I'm getting from the special knowledge that I have. Knowledge is a tool of power, you know. So this is one of the big uh, problematic areas of, of this kind of seeking for knowledge. The other is even more fundamental, and that has to do with the nature of the knowledge of the mind. And that's two Two really important things to note there. One is mental knowledge is all based on the ability to create a distinction between subject and object. It objectifies. It objectifies the word. In other words, we, we act to ourselves as if we are somehow superior to the world in which we live. Because we act as if the world is driven by rules and norms and laws that we understand. In other words, we have that faculty by which we are superior to all these structures and laws with which the world is run so that we can understand it and therefore we are its masters. But we turn it on ourselves as well. So there is knowledge of the world and knowledge of the what and the who, the who, who is the knower. We turn it on ourselves as well. And we hide from ourselves the fact that, you know, where's the dividing line between subject and object? Who is the subject, right? The mind itself is a mechanism. It, it operates on the assumption that there are laws and it tries to create a world that it subordinates to its seeking for laws. So all it looks at is a technology. It's understanding, it's understanding of the human, you see, is sort of starts from the bottom with biology. You know, we are a machine. And that machine has somehow produced this funny thing called consciousness, you know. But consciousness is the product of a machine. And we can just sort of tinker with it, put in the right chemicals, and kind of change its behavior. Right? We can set it right if it goes wrong. We can push it in some direction that, you know, we want it to go to. 
if it's not doing what it wants or what we want it to do. So this kind of a a kind of a equation of the subject with the rational mind, what Kant calls the cogito, you know, the mental ego, what we call, becomes the subject, and the object becomes whatever the mental ego turns upon, you know. And the 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 hidden fact in the in all that that it's itself part of the world in which it is operating, right? So you know, my my assumption that I have something in me which is outside the world and is the real power of the the master power by which everything can be known, right? Is 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 a, is a tricky thing because ultimately that thing itself is held by the world, and the world cannot be known by piecing together its laws. The world is a whole, an indivisible whole, and this is what we are finding out today. We are trying to piece it together into more and more sophisticated wholes, and not succeeding. We we end up creating systems. This is the whole idea of systems theory. Right, you you look at it from bottom up, and you look at it in terms of material systems, nanotechnology, and then you look at life technologies, you know, molecular biology, and then you look at, you know, sort of the technologies of of society, of politics, political science, and all that, and you think that you know we can just tinker with it and put it together, but we can't. Nature is, you know, sort of pushing us to the brink of extinction. We we are in a climate event right now, crisis, you know, um, crossing over of genetic material is creating this kind of a pandemic, which we cannot handle. And then we have culture. We have the fact that this image of the human that we are talking about that we've normalized and we believe that this is what we are and what we ought to become everywhere is ultimately not bought by everybody. And those who don't buy it, they ultimately go to war. They're not going to, they're they're the renegades of modernity. And today we see all these various kinds of forces that are pitted against each other. And it's the in the hour of the triumph of technology, we also see the, the disruption of the power of technology. Yes. Um... You know, Kenan, also, I mean, you brought that up in the first question, but I think it should be addressed, uh, at least touched on now. The whole thing about Technology as colonialism. You see, in a way, in a way, you know, I mean, I mean, there are philosophers uh, who use the term of uh, the colonization of the life world. You know, the colonization itself, you know, ultimately is a techno is a technological, you know, sort of paradigm. Colonization is ultimately looking to use resources for one's own purpose by knowing the laws of things 
by arriving at the knowledge of things and by controlling things so that they are to my benefit. So our age, in a sense, this technological age is a colonial age. It's the age of uh, ontological colonialism. Um, and when, when you say, could you explain what you mean by ontological colonialism? Yeah, I mean that, you know, when we talk about colonialism, we are talking about a historical chapter of modernity. You know, it, it starts from about the 16th century. You can actually trace its kind of movement. It starts with certain countries, starts with, in fact, Spain and Portugal. They are the first colonizing nations. They they feel that the power of science, again, we have this notion of science, right, that we can actually know the world. But why do we want to know? Again, we come to the will to power. We want to, the, the voyages of discovery are all sponsored and they're sponsored by the church and they're sponsored by the state, by the, by the kings, because they're going to lead to colonization. They're going to lead to resources. They're going to lead to control. Uh, there's a kind of a fantasy of control over non-Western peoples. And there's the fantasy of control over resources of the world. So will to power combined with the will to knowledge is fueling colonialism. So it starts with, you know, the, 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 that's the, the point of time, the transition from the what we today call the Dark Ages, you know, the, the medieval period to the modern period. Um, but very soon, uh, these powers realize they don't need the church. You know, I mean, what's the point? For some time, you have these colonizers Christianizing the world and kind of getting rid of all religions and all that. But gradually, they realize that it's all about capitalism. We don't need to get into, we don't need to spend our energy changing these people into something else. All we need to do is to subordinate whatever it is that they believe in and turn them into rational beings. That's the age of modernity. We make that's the ultimate white man's burden. We turn it, we bring education to them. And we educate them to make them into rational beings so that they're like us, but a little inferior to us, so that we can still control them. And we colonize them so that they become subordinated to us. They learn enough about the use, just like it's it's a parallel of what we want to do with the computer today. We want to create robotic machines that will be predictable. In other words, they won't turn around and bite us, but they'll do our bidding in the most sophisticated way. Whatever we can, the grammars that we can produce will be produced by these machines. I mean, it's ironical because in a sense, we are identifying by we, I mean, you know, the originators of humanism and of, of modernity are identifying themselves by their rationality. But in a sense, they're saying this rationality can be put into a machine. And that brings us ultimately to the notion of transhumanism and, you know, things like the singularity, university, etc., where 
they are trying to now, I mean, you exteriorize this image of the human so far. It's, it's really a self-fulfilling feeling prophecy, right? It's, it's, it's a circular argument. You've defined yourself as a machine, and now you've exteriorized the machine, and I'm going to call that a human or a transhuman. Yeah, yeah. No, fascinating. I think that you touched on so many elements of uh, what is kind of hidden and I think that the conflict that we're having today is part of the reason is to call forth clarity of these hidden agendas that they seem very innocent and that they're, they're going to deliver. But time and time again, as we've been highlighting, that, that that's not been the case. And um, I mean, each one of these team, themes is pretty deep, but you, meant, you were mentioning about colonization and I, I um, you know, come from that part of the world and being educated there, I've I think I fully bought into that. And part of that was to become, become rational. And um, uh, these are the parts of India and Pakistan for me. And I, I saw how, you know, secularism was kind of cherished and spirituality and your own tradition and inher- inheritance was, uh, I mean, the people of the land are saying that, you know, our ancestry is an inferior thing because they fully bought into this. And those who get educated want, want to leave the country and, you know, become part of the, the technological uh, yeah. revolution. Right. So I'm coming kind of coming back full circle in a way, how you elegantly described and how this happened. It almost seems like one of the things that you, you were describing is that we're, at the end of the day, are beginning to colonize ourselves as a resource. So before that wasn't happening, but now we're at this thing where we're trying to, to do damage to ourselves in that way. And, and that seems like a thing in, in transhumanism where uh, they have this idea of the escape velocity where technology develops, develops, and it gets to a point close to the singularity or when the singularity happens where they can't predict, but humans at that point are obsolete. To me, it doesn't paint a very, you know, something that lifts my heart and also, this is one of the concerns now with, with AI. Um, what you're saying is where technology can no longer be controlled and it surfaces in the, in the discussions where uh, we won't be able to control the genie. The genie has left the box, so to speak. Um, but did, did you want to say anything about this, um, this threat of technology now to, to humans in the form of AI? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, what you're saying there about, you know, this whole notion of uh, escape velocity, you know, it's it's really uh, very troubling and extremely kind of with us right now. I mean, I, this entire discussion in our time really is, I mean, when we think about the religious people, what they call the, the so-called millenarians, you know, uh, the millenarians, mil- Millenarianism is essentially the movement where you you think that the millennium has come, right? I mean, it's in other words, some kind of apocalypse, thing is going to happen. Apocalypse is taking place right now. It's what they call the end times, and the sense of the end times is around us. You know, we may admit it, not admit it. We may live in a kind of a sort of you know, word of uh, just 
I mean, where, where we assume everything is a, a business as usual. But somewhere, uh, we know that we are in exceptional times when this you started by talking about extinction. Extinction is right around the corner. And that's when some people are talking about the coming of a messiah, coming of some kind of power. And so too, I mean, you know, this kind of technological divinity, technosis, if you use that term, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that we've entered right now, um, is looking for the technological messiah, the machine messiah, right? Uh, yeah, th 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 there's a great song by the band Yes, called Machine Messiah. Mm. Uh, fantastic song, but <laughs> that's, that's what it's about, you know? It, it's looking for the machine messiah to take us out of our limitations, right? In other words, God's going to come through the machine in a sense, it's going back to the deists who were thinking that man has been mission to create this something that ultimately embodies the fullness of the faculty with which God created the world to such an extent that it exceeds any individual. You know, so that, that's also part of the entire um knowledge-making factory of modernity, you know, that any individual only lives for so long and only has a kind of a capacity for so much sort of work uh, during that time and during that space. So can we create systems whereby even if you're living way, you know, on the other side of the world, and even if you're living 200 years from now, uh, we have a seamless body of knowledge. Th that's part of the archiving system of modern knowledge academy. You know, we live in this kind of sort of second world of the knowledge, which is really now all virtualized. This is the omniscience of the virtual world, right? So can we put that into a machine can a machine, which no individual can sort of sustain right now at least, and the machine now beats the best chess player so it can see much further into the number of steps it takes. If we are talking about a certain finite, very large number of, you know, probabilities, permutations, and combinations, uh, and it can be made of materials that outlasts history and all that. So it's basically kind of, you know, exceeded the human in terms of its computational power and in terms of its endurance uh, and in terms of its ability to archive knowledge, you know, all the sort of bits and bytes of information that can be archived from the world is there can be processed, we have something now which, in that sense, has entered escape velocity, right? But it's still a very large finite. Right. It's a very large finite, and it is constrained by the laws of logic. You know, even if you turn it into symbolic logic, you may turn it into, you know, 
fuzzy logic, uh, all the various paradigms of artificial intelligence uh, will still not be able to allow it to come to any kind of intuitive certainty through a contact with what it is trying to know. It retains its separation of the subject and the object with the subject being the machine of logical knowledge. Yes. yes. So all that you've done is ultimately created a kind of a superhuman, you know, a, a, a kind of a magnified human. This is sort of like what the asuras in the Hindu Puranas were like. They were like just magnified humans with 10 heads or 100 heads and 100 arms and all that. But the capacities were just magnified. I mean, we are coming cl close to what you were talking about regarding technology seen as, you know, powers of consciousness, you know. But here you've limited that consciousness to logical consciousness, consciousness of the operation of mental knowledge and put it into something which magnifies it out of its boundaries and you call it you call it God, you call it apotheosis. Yes. So you really, you know, it, it still retains all the limitations that the individual has. It's just a little, just like they say, you can go 10 steps. I mean, a, a little insect can look, you know, only an inch in front. Uh, a monkey can look, you know, several feet in front. A bird can look a mile in front. Human beings have their instruments with which they can look, you know, way out into space, but it's still a finite amount of looking. You don't know what's outside that limit. And what's yeah. outside that limit can blow you out of this world in an instant. Plus, you don't have the wisdom to understand oneness. That's the ultimate thing. You don't have the wisdom to understand oneness and you can other whatever is outside your limits. And that other, that other ring is ultimately going to come back to you and destroy you. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, this uh, notion that earlier that you were highlighting of the, the split of the subject and the object and also that within technology, ultimately, even this, what we're trying to do, it seems like as a, as a civilization is to objectify the, the subject. Yeah. Like a complete dismissal of our subjectivity. Exactly. Which, is, uh, which clearly is, maybe we, we could say with some confidence that that's clearly not working for us. And, um, you know, I don't want to be colonized. And I think there, there, there are a lot of us who, who wouldn't want it. In any ways, it doesn't seem to be the delivering the 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 ideals uh, behind technology, um, and I I think that um, when I read actually Heidegger's definition that you were highlighting of um, how he defines technology as revelation of aspects of being was very beautiful because it almost seems like he was bringing back uh, it could seem like that it would possibly be from any Indian tradition any yogic tradition of uh, the project of creation 
as an expression of God's creativity or as Shiva's creativity. Right. right. And I feel like that then um, I didn't know too much about the will to power, but to me, it seems like that if that subjectivity is restored, then that will to power takes the form of creativity, creative expression. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, beautiful, very, very true. So Heidegger, uh, I mean, that's a very, very, very important uh, essay. You know, I think one of those essays that really marks, um, you know, human knowledge uh, from that point of view that he wrote in the 60s. The, 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 the question the, about technology. The question about technology, right. The question about technology. He starts by talking about this will to power as technology and basically the kind of hubris of the modern age. He talks about and framing and uh, what he calls creating standing reserve, which is really our ability to try to stop time and basically can bring everything into one picture. We basically, I mean, in a sense, in that article, he's predicting the notion of the supercomputer. He's saying that the, 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 you know, mistaken notion that we can stop time, we can stop radical infinity by creating a box for everything, you know, and that, that in framing and that standing reserve, standing reserve means it doesn't mean where it was, where where it comes from, you know. It's standing there in reserve for me to order it. You are nothing but a set of properties in an archive somewhere, and uh, if I have control over it, I press a button and you do that. In a way, that's happening. That's the state of what are called controlled societies of our time, the term used by Deleuze, because you are being profiled by all the things that you do uh, using these things that you do as ways by which it's creating images of you. And whenever you're looking at anything in the world, th those images are being thrust on you and you're being made to desire things based on you're profiling, you see? So it's a kind of standing reserve. You've become a standing reserve. You're being ordered around according to your, your definition as resource. Not only resource of production, but even more importantly, resource of consumption. Mm -hmm. You're a consumer. You're being given money on loan to consume what's being produced so that this capital system can run. You see, so this kind of a, this this is the, this is the in a way the way in which technology creates our world that Heidegger is already seen in that in that essay, but he's also saying there that you know in the ancient world, techne and oasis were the same thing. Oasis is. Uh, which is related to poetry, but poesis is the creative power, the power by, power by which self-creation takes place, by which there is a creative energy that is coming into manifestation, that is taking all the elements and making something that is a offering to the gods from us, you know, 
an offering to the world, an offering to the gods from us. And the effect that that brings, the kind of bliss that that brings, you know, that is what humanity is about. And the way it's done is technique, technology. Knowing how to do it is technology. Here we come back to the ancient idea of technology as creative power, creative know-how. Wow. And uh, yeah. was, that, was that coming from a particular civilization or culture at some point in time when you said technosis? And he, he's, he's, using, he's using the Greeks. He's using ancient. So Heidegger's project is largely a kind of a going back before Aristotle and even Plato, uh, he calls them to, to the pre-Socratics. And he's saying that ancient civilization, and he's looking at the Greeks, but later he's having dialogues with, you know, a Japanese, uh, you know, thinker and all that. But he's looking at a layer of civilization that predates uh, the kind of turn towards uh, a shift of technology from poesis. Okay. Um, yeah. and, and, and this is Deleuze? No, this this is Heidegger, but uh, Deleuze is talking about how, you know, I use the term uh, controlled societies. He's talking about how our present contemporary society <clears throat> has sort of, is the machine that has disappeared into us. We live, that's a, as, a, as we started, we, we, are, we live in a technological ontology, you know. I also use the term technology as colonial ontology. So ontology is, this is the, 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 the water in which we swim. This is the being in which we live. Technology has disappeared in us so that we walk around, but we are actually, you know, you have other thinkers like Baudrillard, you know. Baudrillard is saying the real is the virtual. Yes. The, yeah. In other words... Yeah, I mean, the virtual reality has disappeared in us. And what we look at, look around us are images of the virtual that have actually been exteriorized. Yes. But yeah, Kinan, I also wanted to, since you brought it up, this thing about technology, the reversal of technology. So I think, you know, a very important figure in that is Michel Foucault. Uh, and when you're talking about uh, Heidegger and this, you know, question concerning technology and the, you know, what is technology? This whole thing about what is technology? Is technology this way by which we exteriorize our rational will to power, our will to power to know the laws of things through rationality, you know? I mean, there's a second problem with that. The, the first problem is the problem of subject and object. The second problem is that logic has its own laws. That's part of the thing about enframing or what's called the law of the excluded middle. In other words, if something, if you give a name to something, only that has that name. Everything other than that cannot be that, right? If you're a Muslim, you can't be a Hindu, right? Of course, that, that may not be such a good example because there we are going into religions and their self-definitions. But, you know, even in a broader sense, 
you know, if if you are given a certain kind of a definition, it's as if you you'll be slotted there. Now you can have overlapping definitions, right? But in a certain sense, if a certain definition is the so-called opposite of another definition, you can't belong to both. But in life, we do belong to many things at the same time. We belong to opposites at the same time. We transit from one end to another of various polarities. Rationality does not handle that or does not handle that except through, you know, kind of other types of logics that don't really work uh, except in an approximate way. The really approximate, it works best by making you something, by fixing a certain image on you, by discriticizing you. So that is also its own big problem. That's part of the colonization problem. We create our object. We don't merely sort of, you know, take the world as object. We create the world as object and we reduced it. It's a reductive process. That's part of the colonization of the whole thing. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. I, I can come back. You go go ahead with, with what you were saying. I, okay. I was just going to say what you were saying um, about poesis and technosis before. Yeah. Um, that poetry actually allows these sometimes exactly. these paradoxes to, to exactly. come together. And it's very interesting because it's not so much a, a rational reconciliation, but it's a poetic reconciliation, which is the 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 it's still the paradox remains, but yet it's it's not so much of a problem. Exactly. But rationality exactly. does not want to admit that, and uh, yes. so we keep on having these uh, these conflicts. And it, it seems like uh, looking at what you've been describing and what you're describing about Heidegger is that it's very poetic, this relationship of being and technology itself. Yes, yes, yes. So, <clears throat> you know, I was going to come to Foucault, who really is very deeply engaged with Heidegger. Um, and, you know, towards the end of his life, he's, he's trying to retrieve the idea of technology. So he's saying that there are four kinds of technology. I mean, so that right in the beginning, it's important for us to pluralize the notion of technology. Technology is not just what we call technology today, which is really the, the, what, what Heidegger is saying, that we've ended up calling this technology, you know. So he's saying there are technologies of production. That's what we call technology, technologies of production. They're both production by the mind, just as we said, you know, you... you create the world that you're now going to understand and handle by fixing a certain limit on it, a certain idea on it. And there are technologies of science. Science, in other words, this, these are semiotics, semiotic technologies that also work in a similar way. It creates the world we live in uh, in a most subtle way. They are technologies of governmentality. You know, we govern through in a, in a soft way through signs that people understand, right? The third is the technologies of power. And these are also technologies of governmentality that 
he has been concerned with throughout his life, where he's talking about how administration takes place using these powers of technology. The word, that's the colonization. The, you know, in a way, we live in a colonized world because we are being technologically administered. You know, we are given technological definitions of and a political sort of census realities and being ordered or ordered about as standing reserve in that sense, you know, either by capital or by politics. And the fourth kind of technology are technologies of the self. So he's saying these four, these three kinds of technologies create you as a subject. Who are you? You know, it's given to us. It's given to us by capital. It's given to us by the government. It's given to us by the science systems in which we live, right? We don't even ask it, but we become what we are being asked to become. But the fourth kind of, of technology is technologies of the self. And that is, can we turn around and ask, how can I create myself? What are the laws by which I'm constituted and how can I unravel those laws and create other kinds of machines which serve the poetic self in me, which become the instrument of poesis in me, my self-becoming, my self-creation in the deepest sense, not in the rational sense, right? In the mysterious sense of the power that connects us to knowledge, true knowledge, as the intuition of identity. You know, how can I, how, you know, once we wean ourselves from the illusion that the only way in which I can know is by using my rationality to, you know, sort of dissect the laws of things, I find that I have a deeper connection with things by which I can intuit my oneness with them. Yes. I have a deeper connection with myself through which I can offer myself as something to the world. I can become in the world something. I can, I can become the cup of God, you know, that is offered. And the power by which I do that is technologies of the self. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think this is a great, um, perhaps, perhaps a way to dovetail because two of the things that you've highlighted or actually I've noticed is one is the affect, the importance of affect in yeah. voices, as you were saying, because that in the movement of rationality that was divorced and also the the divorce that's taken place between technology and being or the yeah. segment. And uh, it seems at least that it's not, although that we have a mainstream agreement on that model, which is now starting to perhaps break apart, there's always been, even in technology, there, like in quantum mechanics, for instance, this debate of the subject and object right. has been coming up for the last, I don't know, 50 or more years now. Yeah. And a lot of the thinkers and technologists and scientists oftentimes have been spiritualists. 
uh, it just so happens uh, that, uh, like we we're earlier, I think we we're mentioning Einstein, who said that you can't solve, uh, you can't bring solutions from a level that problems level. created. Yeah. Um, so it was very much a mystic, but the tragedy seems that predominantly in our civilization, we seem to take those technologies and use the um, the big finite, as you were saying, to to apply it to our lives, and that is resulting in all kinds of problems. So the, the solution, maybe we can talk a little bit about about the solutions, uh, which which perhaps brings in the subjectivity or technologies of subjectivity. Yeah, absolutely, cannot. Also, I'd like to mention, since you brought in history and you brought in science, uh, it's so interesting how um, you know we were talking about the sweep of modernity that we've had these moments of self-introspection, historically speaking, you know, and that there are points of time when new things have happened and then they've got covered over. So like something else is preparing. This Heidegger is talking about this as well, that about technology as having a saving power in it as well, that, you know, there's the other side of technology that's also developing in parallel with this kind of, you know, more triumphalist narrative that we are talking about. And, you know, we find in our, our times, I mean, uh, throughout the history, you have the romantic period, you have the transcendentalists of Germany, you have the romantics in, in, in England, you have uh, the transcendentalists of America, you know, and then you have this entire really kind of, you know, amazing period at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, when exactly what you're talking about is happening, all these scientists and this this writing about this, um, in fact, you know, I'm actually co-editing a book uh, called Quantum and Consciousness Revisited. And that's really looking at this, this point of time um, is, you know, if you think about it, I mean, this, the mechanical view what has been usually and even if you you can't even call it newtonian because newton himself was an alchemist you know there's a mixture of the subjective and the objective taking place way back in the 16th century happens again in the 20th century um, and that's when what you're talking about is happening all these you know all these people you know whether you talk about uh, pauli or you talk about Heisenberg, you talk about Bohr, um, you know, um, Leibniz you, you talk well. about, pardon? Leibniz as well. Was... Oh, yeah, Leibniz, of course, is as, as a as a Enlightenment philosopher, but I'm saying at the 20th century, uh, all these people are grappling with this thing and they're saying that hey, it's, it's, it's the subject-object duality um, you know, is being is being challenged by uh, the laws of physics itself. If we actually really look at it deep enough, we we can't go by the assumptions of the Enlightenment anymore. You know, and then you have this big movement in the '60s that takes place uh, in many many spheres, but it's a countercultural movement. Um, so that brings us really to what you're talking about and today the fact that this you know kind of apothe apotheosis of technology is simultaneously 
the death knell of the extinction of the human race. I mean, the death knell of the human race, in a sense. I mean, side by side, you have these two narratives that are going on. On the one side, we've reached singularity. We're, we've almost hit the escape velocity. You know, just we, we'll get wiped out as a race, but we'll populate the stars in bodies made of silicon and kind of, you know, memories made of all the information that the earth can provide. Um, so such human history can provide, you know, these kind of narratives coexisting, you know, at our times. And, you know, if you take just one step back, you realize that there can be a completely different story to the whole thing, which is not based on the acceptance of this narrative, you know, whether the narrative of doom or the narrative of uh, triumph, you know, that technologies of the self can actually, you know, make us into something other than what we limit ourselves by. And I think that one of the, perhaps, one of the beauty of these technologies of the self is that it is more a revelation of what potentials we already have within us rather than as compared with like let's say transhumanism where there is an obsolescence of the of the human species itself to become something else but this technology that's of the self is revealing something that's here right now exactly exactly and you know also this whole thing about what is the human you know i mean it's it's you may say post-humanism transhumanism, there is a looking beyond the human. The whole notion of the post-human is that in a way, we have always not been happy with our limits. You know, I mean, uh, even in terms of uh, what is what is what makes us human, you know, I mean, if you compare the human with other kinds of life forms, uh, there's not merely the technological aspect of exceeding our capacity to handle the world, but there's also the fact of, you know, what is the capacity to identify with the world? You know, how can we come into union with things? How can we exceed our limits as beings who are separated? I think that's the ultimate frontier of, um, you know, the kind of the, 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 um, fragmentation of the world. We experience ourselves as separated beings, yet we intuit a profound sense of identity that we try to, you know, sort of wipe out of the place by talking about all these types of technologies. Yeah, and it's interesting that you use the word intuition because oftentimes, uh, or a lot of times in, you know, among governments and institutions, organizations that we have, we're using this form of rational ethics or egoic ethics to try to patch up things and make them work. And time and time again, they don't seem to work. Uh, but intuition perhaps is a, is a good word is to, to realize the unity that already exists and then let the, the ethics and the laws naturally flow, flow through that rather than trying to create something um, using the, the limited rationality. Absolutely, absolutely. And this would also link to what you had touched on earlier, 
about non-duality and the trend towards escape within it, you know. So th this has become the problem, you know, that in a sense, this is where non-duality has to go. It has to go towards our everyday lives. It has to go towards our experience of where we want to go as human beings, you know, not the transhuman that is trying to escape out of the earth through escape velocities because we are going to extinct ourselves, but the but the being that is one with the earth that knows its oneness because those powers are already inside us. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, this this is something I've experienced and maybe we can go into this a little bit, which is that in, uh, particularly, I don't know how it is in the East, but in Western non-duality, there is this emphasis on, uh, even as a teaching tool, as the world, as an illusion. And oftentimes, um, if one comes with the impression of wanting to creatively express in the world or be a concerned citizen of the situations, the paradigms that we're in, it's sort of looked down upon as if that's a problem. Because uh, why would anyone want to engage with an illusion in the first place? Um, and I think that the downside of that is, which I wanted to check in with you, is that uh, when we talk about non-duality, we're talking about reconnecting with the supra-rational, with the, with the infinite within us. And that is, again, connecting with the being and having the potential to express uh, in this world through the creative power rather than the power to dominate as a separate self. But if you, if, if you see that engagement as a problem, um, then you have all these people who are the right people to engage with these problems, but now they've taken the backseat. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely, Kenan. And, you know, I think part of it comes from a very deep pessimism. Uh, it's sort of, you know, I mean, this is one of the, I mean, uh, if, it, if we talk about India, for example, or the Indian kind of, you know, technologies of transcendence, you know, uh, you find that uh, there is a kind of a repetition of the fact that the world with all its problems is insoluble. You know, that it's, as they say, avidya. You know, avidya is permanent. You know, this is the permanent condition. You can't do anything about it. This, again, to, to, on top, this is the ontology of ignorance, right? It's a cosmic ontology of ignorance with which we can't do anything, but what we can do is get out of here. We can sort of uh, find a place of liberation, individual liberation, and we can teach it to others so that they can get liberated. And we can even create philosophies where our highest ideal is, is to stick around teaching others how to be liberated so that the world ultimately has no peace. Everybody is liberated. Okay. But, you know, I mean, this kind, this, this could be a view, you know, it's just a view. Uh, it's based entirely on the assumption that the world is an irredeemable place. We're not here to actually exercise our creative energies or even our sense of identity to manifest that here, you know. But you have others, you know, I mean, thing about India, if you go back in history, is that there are so many kinds of ways, you know, and there has been 
a certain kind of a enablement of plurality in seeking for various kinds of forms of transcendence or self-exceeding, you know, various self forms of self-exceeding. Uh, but there's also been a kind of a hegemonic function. You know, you, you have certain schools that have come in. You have schools that are empowering our creative faculties, like Tantra, for example. And then you have other schools that have come in and said, said, well, that is okay, but you use that to transcend, get out, you know. So overall, what has predominated is this sense, and otherwise it has become esoteric. Either in the mainstream, the idea is samsara and sannyasa, right? Samsara flowing together with the world, you know, and this flowing together is a codependent arising, as in Buddhism, right? You, you So long as you are part of it, you are part of it. You can't do anything about it. You are moving with it. If you break it, you can get out of it. But that's then you don't. You're not part of the system. You the the system is a permanent condition of ignorance. You know, so you make that distinction between sannyasa and samsara, and you you have to choose a, you know, one or the other, right? It that's its own dualism. It's a, its own dualism. It's it's not necessary to buy into it at all. And today, buying into it is is a great um, you know detriment to the human spirit. I feel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was wondering if you would say that in these two views, would poises be helpful? <laughs> you kind of bring them together. Absolutely, absolutely. I think so. That's exactly where uh, they they need to be bridged. I think poesis. This is this is the ancient teaching of poesis. I think poesis, self creation, the way by which the world is created, cosmogenesis, the cosmos is generating itself in all the creatures, but in the human being, it generates itself in a special way because the human being has faculties that have unleashed a higher degree of creativity, you know, our consciousness. So with this consciousness, we can actually become conscious to a greater extent and fashion ourselves and our world as a conscious world, a world of, of you know, of, of plurality and unity at the same time. Yes. Um, actually, uh, many things come to mind because you, you're, you're so elegantly uh, put your finger on the pulse. Uh, a word that comes to to my mind is bodhisattva, which is a concept I'm not too familiar with, but in I've heard of this comparison because the bodhisattva is, is more of an engaged, enlightened being versus the beings who are free but have nothing to do with the with the world at large. Would you say that this would this isn't kind of an yeah, understanding? But we have to take it what so there that's what one of the things I was referring to, Kenan, because uh I'd say it's a step in addiction, but so the, the distinction there is between the arhat and the bodhisattva in, in Buddhism, in Mahayana Buddhism. So arhat is the 
solitary thread sender, right? The one who looks to his own goal, basically, and gets out. And it's fine for that person, you know. But the bodhisattva is the one that hangs around and helps others, right? But you see, the problem is that the paradigm is still one of samsara and sannyasa because that's what I was saying. The bodhisattva is waiting for you to also transcend and not to transform, not to create a world in which we can all be, uh, you know, beings, divine beings. So they're waiting for you to, they're going to help you to get out of this situation that cannot be solved. Absolutely. One of the things, Debashish, that that I wanted to say is it almost feels like that the one who is enlightened or supra-rational and wants to engage with the world um, is invested in the potential expressions of being of what could be possible of uh, like it seems like a very creative endeavor yeah whereas the one of abandoning doesn't seem like there's much talk of creativity in that process yeah so you know in a way you know following up on your saying I think uh, creativity itself is is a I mean, there's so many paths to becoming divine. Creativity as a path to becoming divine. And you can talk about it as in, in the most profound sense of self-creation, you know, creativity, making one's life creative. Uh, every moment, every word, every act, every breath, you know, every internal function can be an act of creativity. Right, this becomes its own technology of self-creation. See, now this kind of understanding is not what even let's say the Indian spiritual paths are empowering. So, as you're pointing out, I, what I'm th- saying is that today we need to engage with the world in a spiritual way but according to what the world is demanding from us. And it may be demanding from us things that we haven't yet explored. What do we need to bring in? What is the path that's necessary today? What is the work to be done? You know, I think we can look to the past, but that none of the solutions of the past should guide us in terms of this is the only way. You know, every moment is its own question and demands its own answer, yes. which nobody may have given in the past. And I think today we have to look at spirituality in that way. Yeah, I think that's, that's very beautiful what you just said. Um, and it makes it much more, more creative and playful. Exactly. Um, and what, what you've been mentioning throughout our conversation where we have talked about the kind of the history of the Western civilization in association with technology. And then now we're looking at some of the spiritual traditions. And it seems like that throughout different periods, we're engaging in this conversation and interpretation, reinterpreting uh, the past to meet the demands of what could be uh, a process of coming. 
so that nothing really be, stays fixed. And th- this is something that I, as a spiritual seeker, I've um, coming to realize that ultimately you have to find your own answers. You cannot just accept um, answers that have been handed down. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, your answers, your questions, are, your answers have to, you know, arise from the questions that you have to be open to in your time and place. Mm-hmm. I think that's the first. That's the first step towards this way. You know, the the technologies of the self in our times. Um, you know, we can build our own relations with the past, but those relations and that those genealogies have to emerge from trying to answer the questions that are given to us in our, you know, kind of engagement with our time and place. One thing that, um, I don't know how relevant that is, but this is something I did want to touch with you on, um, but you've, since you've brought this forward, this issue of time, and from what, what you were saying is even this interpretation and engagement with the, with the past, uh, with the questions that are present in our time, shows this kind of flexibility of, of time itself. You know, how we look at the past and how we're looking at the future. Both of them become like potentials uh, that are not fixed. Absolutely. That, that, that they are not fixed and that that's part of the reversal, you know, this reversal of, do we have a single story? You know, is there, is there a single past that we live in that we all agree about? And I think, you know, here again, we come to this whole thing about knowledge and the mind. The mind is always looking for one answer. You know, it's the unified field, right? Or whatever you want to call it. The one, the single answer, the age of the world picture that Heidegger talks about. And we want to, so we want to, you know, systems theory again, all over again, you know, Uh, and we want to then trust it on everybody. We found, we found the solution. We found the one and, you know, oh, you don't agree with that one. There must be something wrong with you. Right. So instead of that, what we have now is this search for a new plane of being in which Nothing is fixed. There can be infinite ways and there can be infinite possibilities of who you can become. And at the same time, all of these are part of the one. Can that one and that infinite coexist? That would be a state of consciousness that is beyond the human, not outside the human, as in the monisms of escape, but as the the state that goes just beyond the rational that supersedes the limitations of reason you know the the law of the excluded middle that we were talking about that can actually accept infinite plurality and know at the same time this is all the one the infinite one and we can live together wondering at our Uniqueness, both not not merely uniqueness in terms of uniqueness of the same or flavors of the same human, but uniqueness of the infinite post-humans that we are while we are the one being. 
Yeah, this is fascinating. Um, there are many ways we could we could take it, I think, but uh, one thing that seems relevant is earlier we were talking about um, UFO sightings pre pre the interview. We were talking about uh, you know alien aliens and UFO sightings coming into the mainstream. You have recently, just three weeks ago, the Pentagon talking about four hundred uh, UFO cases that they made public saying that they don't know what those were. And now we have people openly talking about this stuff at Harvard and other prestigious institutes. You don't feel like a lunatic talking about this stuff. And of course, all these phenomena um, are also closely tied to near-death experiences and spiritual, super-rational experiences. So one of the things that's been, uh, that I've heard a couple of times from interviews at Jeffrey Mishlov and other places is, uh, some people say that these are uh, potentials of our own cells, perhaps post-human cells who are contacting uh, us and are also beckoning us to make first contact, so to speak. And uh, yeah, take it any any way you like, or if you have any comments. On yeah, 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 absolutely, Kinan. I think yeah. So you know, I mean, as you know, the kind of this that. The scientific view to all this is that this is this is just you know let's suppress it. This is just this does not exist. You know this is just uh, you know various kinds of uh, uh, I mean, conspiracy theories. These are all conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, and they can take on that kind of quality as well. The, yes. Those who believe in it, a lot of them, they are cult followers. They kind of you know become eccentrics. They become uh, you know uh, they they have many other kind of irrational ideas, etc. But you know, Carl Jung is one of the first people to say that the events point to the contents of our collective unconscious uh, about to you know send its messages and about to break through because we've suppressed it so much in the name of rationality you know we've created this kind of zone in which everything else has been pushed under so that which has been pushed under kind of you know collectively and so it becomes a kind of phenomenon that is observed by many people makes its appearance in a variety of places and uh, I completely agree with what you're saying. In other words, that the so-called collective unconscious is not just some kind of thing in the memory or some kind of thing in one's dreams that does not belong to our world. It's as real as our waking selves. And it does, you know, sort of, um, I mean, uh, hold the messages of the potential that we are. Uh, and so, in a, in a certain sense, they are making contact with us. They are realities that are making contacts contacts with us. What do we make of them? Um, that's the question. What kind of? I mean, again, all these things are not one sided. Just like our relationship with our past is not one sided. The the past becomes what you, in relationship with it, want to make it into the future. You know, so the stories we tell about our contact with these things also give shape to these things. 
they have enough amorphousness to them, they have enough ambiguity to them to invite us into their own self-making in the future and into our self-making in the future. And I think that's the invitation of all these things that are that, that are going on uh, just under the surface, but surfacing around us. Yeah, beautiful. Actually, when you, when you said that this is stuff that we had repressed at the, at the unconscious level, that seems to make sense because these experiences are not just limited to UFO sightings and alien abductions, but the same themes are now being talked about whether those are psychedelic experiences or super, you know, spiritual experiences um, and even NDEs. So the sure. themes, there are parallel themes through different means, which kind of points to something coming from a unified source, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> I think, you know, I think that source is is both unified and plural. That that's the thing that 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 source. Um, we have a tendency also to unify these things because that's part of the mental problem. Uh, when we get messages that are beyond us, we try to ultimately create a version that we agree about. You know, and yes, to some extent, we we are okay in creating structures based on what we, but we have to be open also to uniqueness. We have to be open to plurality. And these messages are messages for each one of us as well. That there's a certain kind of extremely, again, you to use the term singularity in a more consciousness-oriented way, there's something singular about each of these that invites each of us towards our own futures. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. Um, maybe one, one related theme we, we have touched on, and you, you've spoken quite a bit about it, is we were talking about the tantric traditions. And one of the, uh, in my own studies, I've been studying Kashmir Shaivism. And, um, uh, you know, look at, looking at what Heidegger was saying as technologies and beings, it's, it's beautiful because, um, actually, I just also want to quickly mention that I, I, did, I saw your interview that I'll put in the show notes uh, on tantric goddesses with with Jeffrey Mishla, which is very relevant. And in that, it, it again, this concept of Shiva and Shakti, which is the being, and Shakti would be the equivalent of technology, technologies of the self, so to speak, where each one of our uh, organs and every, everything about the human being are, are the energies or perhaps even technologies, so to speak. And you can, you can work with them to, to express various kinds of potentials. And um, yeah, I, w- I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that because Shiva, the being, has an infinite set of energies that he plays with. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt, absolutely. So I, I think it kind of converges with all that we've been discussing, you know. And so that, that ultimately, you know, I mean, the whole thing in... So again, Tantra, there are many v- various schools of Tantra, various sects, but I think... One of the really most inviting things about Tantra for me is the shaping of a divine self. And that's where, you know, whether you take it according to a certain school or you just take it according to the principle and you try to apply those principles in an essential and creative manner, uh, ultimately it sees every faculty in us as a goddess. 
And as you said, a technology in the sense that it's actually a grammar. It's actually a certain kind of, uh, you know, law of, of manifestation. So, you know, can we invoke, again, the one that is plural? You know, I mean, ultimately, it's not just a question of one or the other, but the integral. You know, can we find sources of integrality which are, that's the Shiva. Shiva is Purusha or Shiva is, of course, there's one of the problematic things about Tantra is its gendering. You know, Mm -hmm. we may say that, of course, you could say that there is no problem there because the gendering is completely equal. I mean, there's no superior, inferior to the gendering, you know. There is a gendering because there's a polarity in us. This polarity is the polarity of being and expression, whatever you want to call it, and they they gender it. The problematic element with the gendering is that, you know, you start, again, with the law of the mind, you fix certain qualities to the female and you fix certain qualities to the male. You could as well reverse it. And some some schools do reverse Mm -hmm. it. It doesn't matter, you know. I mean... People get hung up on this gendering. I, I don't think it, it is that important. But I think what's what's important is to know that, that there is a being and its infinite expressions that each one of our, you know, and like faculties and organs and, you know, capacities are, are each one of these is a certain energy of manifestation. And they're tied to each other. But this tying to each other is with the way in which they're given to us is connected with the world. We are, our composition, our constitution is already prefabricated in a sense. Not merely because we are just human beings. That is part of it. You know, our animal prefabrication. But we also have a social prefabrication. The relationship of our faculties is already coordinated by our acceptance into the world. So if we look at Tantra in this sense of the technology of the self, I'd say the first step is to de-link the constitution that is given to you to give freedom to these goddesses so that each one of them is its own Shakti connected to the one Shiva. You see the being that you are, the central being, the integral being that you are. And out of that relationship arises an assemblage that creates the individual that you're trying to become, the divine individual, the one with its powers, see, as a, a kind of a single organism that is, in that sense, divine. It almost felt like uh, the, the image that came to mind was like the Transformers. That, that transform into into a different, uh, almost like a different entity each time they have to tackle a new situation. Right. <laughs> yes, that's true. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Um, I, w- I was just going to say, I think one of the things that would be nice to, to touch in, because this, you know, everything that you shared with us is so rich, um, is to cover a little bit more about what is the solution, which we, we started to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, uh, because I think a lot of folks, including myself, are wondering how to navigate this and yeah. 
you know, what can we relate within the past? Because I know you've spoken brilliantly about some of these these technologies, but how can we also bring them bring them here, interface with? Um, yeah. So I think that 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 would be very interested. In. Yeah, yeah. We we can also talk about. You know, I mean, some of the, just as we were discussing the spiritual legacy that we are carrying from the past, how can we adapt it? You know, we don't need to uh, buy into any particular tradition that has been given to us, or we could, but we have to adapt. Whatever we do, we have to adapt it to our own individual, uh, you know, responses to, to our time and place. So uh, what can we take and how can we take it and what use can we make of it? I think those things we can certainly uh, open up further as well. Absolutely. I think that that would be brilliant. And um, one theme, I don't know if it's so much of a theme, I think as we we talked quite a bit on um, the limitations of the rational. And... uh, of course, you know, people who are open to the, the spiritual spiritual dimension, we can talk about how to connect with the supra-rational. I, I would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think, you know, also we, we I started talking about technology as pharmacology with, with both the sides. We talked about the fact that, you know, there there are, you know, kind of, you know, radical positive things that are that are being, that it's being utilized for, uh, but also uh, the poison. So we talked a lot about the poison side, but what yes. about how to utilize it? That's one thing. The other thing is that what you're talking about, the supra-rational, right? Uh, and that, that's what I was saying about instead of the escape, how do we find that plane, which is, you know, exceeding the powers of the rational, but at the same time, supra-rational. What does that mean, you know? And uh, I, I'd like to bring in there some of the work of Sri Aurobindo uh, and some of those people who are talking about this new plane, supermind, that they're calling. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, I think this would be lovely. So uh, thank you so much, Devashish. It was, you know, thank you for sharing all your wisdom. Yeah, and... thanks. Thanks, Kenna. It was, it was really um, a nice conversation, I think. You know, it's, it's great, your questions and your concerns, I think, I think. I resonate with them very much. And so that's why I think it's, it's, yeah, thank you. And it's important here. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye.